0: Today is the last day for Lost and Twin Peaks week on Season 1, Episode 4. Tomorrow we'll begin covering a new Twin Peaks episode. But today we're going to look back on what people have said about this episode in the past. That includes critics, fans, and myself sharing some of my work. Also going to include the Shape of the Show section where I talk about broader aspects of the show that aren't exactly spoilers But if you're watching it for the first time and you don't want to know things like will they reveal the killer or are there parts of the show that people think are better than others, that type of thing, you can check out before that. I'll give a warning. But uh, no explicit uh, plot giveaways there. There is one small exception at the end when I'm going to play a minute, the opening minute, from the next episode. So that could be a teaser if you haven't watched it yet. I'm going to play the audio and then describe what we see, and uh, unlike some openings, there is a little plot movement in the beginning of the next episode. Nothing too crazy that they haven't talked about or led towards yet, but you may want to check out before that if you haven't seen it yet. Up to you. When Time magazine featured David Lynch on its cover later in the year, their article would mention Tina Rathborn, who directed the finest non-Lynch episode last season, Laura's Funeral. For all of Richard Corliss's assertive confidence, I'm not sure how common an opinion this was at the time. Certainly some fans were disappointed by a drop-off from the previous episode, which we'll discuss momentarily as we get into the media coverage and the fans' reactions. That said, the Funeral Screenplay's Emmy nomination, and also some of the critical reception I've seen from the time, suggest that this was a pretty well-received episode. But while most of the writing about Twin Peaks in early April, like very early April, was very specific to the pilot episode. By this point, most of the articles, at least the ones that I can dig up, take a more general approach, describing the broader phenomenon of the season rather than reviewing specific episodes. While looking through my media collection, I found two pieces which were actually published after the next episode aired, but since they were written earlier and dated later, they're for magazines, not newspapers, and since one of them specifically references the ratings for this episode, I'm going to read them here. Both provide an interesting glimpse of Twin Peaks' complex status as a bona fide hip pop culture phenomenon, but a middling success in Nuts and Bolts ratings. First up, Psych Mums and Cherry Pie by Charles Learhison and Linda Wright in Newsweek, May 7th, 1990. The show, which started out with a 21.7 rating and a 33 share when it was broadcast as a two-hour Sunday night movie, had settled down to an 11.3 rating with an 18 share by last week. ABC claims it isn't overly concerned with that statistical dip just yet. The network's research indicates that it's the over-50 audience, much less coveted by advertisers, that's abandoning Twin Peaks as the hunt for Laura's killer grows weirder, and the huge crowd of characters spend more time eating pie, drinking coffee, and having psychic visions. The core group of 18- to 49-year-old viewers remains. The show is doing as well in its time slot as any ABC show in four years. The other article I want to read, or the excerpt, is called Twin Peaks by Robert Wright. The peaks is lowercase because they're talking about not just the title of the show, but you'll see. This was for The New Republic, published May 7th, 1990. Income inequality is growing, creating a cultural cleavage that poses marketers with a stark choice. Either stick with an audience of middle-to-low-income solid citizens, or head for the smaller but richer per capita population of yuppie sophisticates. Or try to have it both ways. Aim for middle America, but throw in a page of must-read copy for young professionals in the know. A more daring attempt to straddle the Twin Peaks can be seen in Twin Peaks, the ABC TV series created by weirdo genius David Lynch. What surprised everyone about ABC's decision to invest in his worldview is that the number of true Blue Velvet fans is limited. If Lynch is to make it on network TV, he'll have to expand his avant-garde following to encompass a chunk of mainstream America. Consider a scene in the second episode involving Leo, a low-life trucker who is a subtly comic caricature of a domineering abusive husband. Leo's wife, it seems, has lost one of his shirts. In a fit of rage, he puts a bar of soap in a sock, turns on the radio, which happens to be playing absurdly archetypal cowboy music, and then approaches the cowering Shelley while swinging the sock around lasso-style, complete with ridiculous whoosh-whoosh sound effects. I'm going to teach you a lesson now, Shelley, about taking care of my property. That means making sure things aren't lost or damaged. Whoosh-whoosh, fade to black. If your sensibilities are a little skewed and you're in the right mood, it's a very funny scene. But I doubt that all 14.9 million viewers were rolling in the aisles, and I doubt that the ones who weren't amused were naively absorbed in the drama of the moment. Besides, even if Lynch did manage the tricky technical feat of getting half of America to laugh at a case of wife abuse while the other half cried, that seems a little on the mean side, because it amounts to having half of his viewers laugh at the other half. Among critics, this episode is often cited as one of the best of season one, with a funeral providing a very memorable set piece and Albert getting some great scenes and dialogue. And fans particularly love this episode, I think, because among, but besides that, it also establishes the Bookhouse Boys, which is a fan favorite. I recall seeing some mixed opinions um, among fans in the Usenet archives, with someone close to the production hinting that it was weaker than some of the upcoming entries, but apparently this wasn't among the comments I rounded up at the time, so that's all I can report on that, unfortunately. Here are some readings and clips from non spoiler pieces that I've written in the past. 2008, I wrote my episode guide during my second viewing of the series, I said, if some characters loosen up a bit, Agent Cooper is unusually subdued. He barely smiles throughout the episode, and even archetypal Cooper lines, there's nothing like the collision between maple syrup and ham, are delivered somewhat flatly. Perhaps McLaughlin was just having an off day, but the performance reminded me of something Lynch once said in an interview, to the effect of, Kyle sometimes had to be coaxed into nailing Cooper. He could lose the thread and hold back a little too much in the wrong hands. On the basis of this episode, Rathbone's hands were the wrong ones, and Coop is a far cry from the chipper boy scout who marched into his hotel room with a big grin on his face to blow one note on his little float, or the thoughtful investigator who suddenly breaks the solemn mood by pinching the sheriff's nose and making an odd noise. Here he seems tired and, well, pretty straight. The episode opens with another flirtation between Cooper and Audrey, whose impenetrable coolness has been melting for a few episodes now, followed by a rather unnecessary recap of last episode's dream sequence, which, oddly enough, gets the description wrong. The first three episodes, including the pilot of Twin Peaks, escalate, ratcheting up the mystery, mysticism, and menace until we culminate with one of the most surreal sequences ever delivered on a television screen. Rest in Pain is inevitably a step back from the abyss. It has Laura's funeral to focus and center it, But in reality, it's the least focused episode yet. In 2014, I uh, created my Journey Through Twin Peaks video series. And in this clip from uh, Chapter 3, called Coffee Without Closure, I analyzed the first three post-pilot episodes as one unit together, climaxing in the aftermath of Laura's funeral. Laura's in the ground, Agent Cooper. That's the only thing I'm sure of. I hope she forgives me. If Cooper is becoming haunted by Laura and getting deeper in touch with whatever it is that haunted her, he's far from the only one. The funeral episode ends with a melancholy moment, telling us something must give. To Laura. Godspeed. Somebody mess with me! Palmer, Leland. We've seen the town mired in grief and guilt for days now, as Cooper gets his bearings and gathers physical clues. With Laura on the ground, the real investigations can begin, and the FBI agent will not be the only one on her trail. In 2016, for a Reddit rewatch, I wrote... With this episode, I think we reached the limits of watching the town in the wake of Laura's death. By now, we're pretty well introduced to everyone. Coop has visited all the relevant townspeople to gather information about Laura, and has the lay of the land. We're now getting ready to move forward on individual stories, as we see with both Norma's visit from the parole officer and the bookhouse boys' drug sting operation, both plots that were seeded in early episodes, but never really started to go anywhere till now. So while some see this as the beginning of a new story cycle, following the explosive dream climax, I see it as the conclusion of a phase, before we begin a new path in earnest. Here is where the sense of frustration and inertia reaches its breaking point, and where Coop's prep work finishes. Soon it will be time to launch a full-on investigation, or several, but today the moment of shock must close itself out. Everything's on hold until the funeral has concluded, and even then its cries of despair and anger echo into the evening. No plot spoilers here, but I will talk about the overall shape of the show, some things that were created after the fact, how I rank it, and things like that. So, for the ranking, I rank this number 13, which is kind of surprising. It's almost uh, sort of halfway in the middle of the rankings. But uh, there's just a lot of great stuff coming up, so I I do like this episode quite a bit, but uh, there's at least a dozen I ranked higher. On the next time preview that's shown at the end of this episode, we see a llama staring at Cooper. We see the sheriff's crew breaking into an apartment. Cooper identifies a sketch as the man that he saw in his dream. Uh, James approaches Maddie and asks who she is. Shelley rubs her handgun across her chest And Josie turns around in shock as her phone rings. For the Log Lady interview, recorded a few years later, written and directed by Lynch, the Log Lady says, There is a sadness in this world, for we are ignorant of many things. She talks about how there's many beautiful things like the truth, sadness and tears are real. She mentions tear ducts. And then she ends on this note, which is great. She says, Then the day when the sadness comes, then we ask, Will this sadness which makes me cry, Will this sadness that makes me cry my heart out, will it ever end? The answer, of course, is yes. One day, the sadness will end. Very interesting statement there. And of course, the sadness and the tears don't really need to be explained. You know, this is contextualized by Laura's funeral here, but I think there's more there to dig into uh, spiritually as well. So with all of that now said about the Laura's funeral episode, let's move forward, start looking toward the next one, here is the opening minute with my description of it. Yeah. yeah, his hair was long. filthy, gray on gray, long hair. I saw him. At the foot of Laura's bed. He looked like an animal. Had you ever seen this man before? No, never. His face! My God, his face! Sarah, did you tell them about the necklace? They're gonna love that one. What necklace? As we fade up, the screen space is dominated by a jagged web of thick to thin, deep black diagonal lines like nerves, cracks, or lightning bolts. In this case, a tree branch dividing itself in hundreds of directions, until all that remain at its tips are jagged little twigs. From the first moment of the fade, the camera is slowly tilting down, ever so slightly reframing to the left, until we settle on an image of the house beneath this tree's outstretched limbs. The house is two stories high, aside from an attic at its peak, with an awning-covered, rail-lined entrance, flanked and backed by trees of varying height. A balcony juts out from a different side, facing another barely on-screen building, and a green lawn stretches towards us, lush in comparison to the black-gray-white-brown of the rest of this image. The branches that filled that composition in the opening seconds continue to dominate the top half of the image, extending across the plane of the roof and second floor, where all the windows are open, as if this tree has entangled itself with the house. Its branches like the wires of a life support system or, perhaps, strings dangling the home in a puppeteer's grasp. This is where the Palmers live. We cut inside the house and see Laura's water-stained homecoming photo, with Sheriff Harry Truman seated across the room, his Stetson resting on a glass bowl. He is staring at something off-screen, and we dolly behind a sofa containing Deputy Andy filling a sketchbook with a charcoal portrait of a long-haired man, Sarah Palmer, adorned in her now-familiar maroon dressing gown, and Donna Hayward, where the shot settles for a moment before the next cut. Donna's father, seated across the room, is also watching intently. Knickknacks adorn the Palmer's living room. Pictures, books, pottery, but everyone's attention is on Andy's sketch, whether or not they can see it. We cut to a medium close-up of a window, as Madeline Ferguson, the Palmer's niece, enters frame left wearing a red dress with a model design, the camera moving with her, as she carries a tray with shiny chrome tea or coffee set to Harry, leaning over as he removes a little white cup and platter and glances up at her with a slight moment of surprise. We cut to the reverse medium as she smiles, lifting the tray and turning toward the next guest, and follow this with a cut to a wide shot surveying all five seated in the room. Another cut follows to a two-shot facing Andy and Sarah as she describes her vision, the camera subtly closing in for a few moments before we cut again to the previous wide shot to glimpse Harry questioning Sarah as Maddie sits down next to Doc on the other side of the room. Leland emerges from behind a divider in an inset area which apparently leads to another room. He wears his own maroon bathrobe, partially buttoned sweater vest and pajamas, with socks, his hair is disheveled and his face looks tired. Cutting to a medium shot of Leland talking to Sarah, followed by a medium close-up of Sarah, we then cut quickly to a similarly sized shot of Harry as he asks for clarification before finally returning to Leland's medium as he prepares to respond, and there our minute ends. We'll stop there, resume tomorrow, as we kick off officially an episode I consider somewhat underrated i think uh, it's one of my favorite episodes of the first season it often gets dismissed as kind of a filler episode i think there's a lot more there to dig into so we'll talk about that throughout that week and if you support this podcast please uh, consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies you can also rate review and subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts see you tomorrow